This is the Comp Effect Podcast. When you focus on workers' compensation, you'll have a safer work environment, more productive staff, lower expenses, and you'll crush your competition. We're sharing real-world stories, actionable tips, business-friendly advice, and information to help your business. I'm your host, Todd Tams. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to today's podcast, Darren Schenk with Triage Now. Welcome, Darren. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How are you today, man? Uh, very good. Thanks. So for, for those of you who don't know, Darren is located in the great state of Arizona, and today it snowed. <laughs> the apocalypse is upon us. The apocalypse yeah. is upon us. I've been in Phoenix for about 35 years, most of my, almost my whole adult life. Um, I think I can remember four times when it snowed, but we actually had snow laying on the ground for a measurable amount of time today. That may be a first as far as in town in some of the outskirts where it's a little bit higher elevation, you know, maybe, but actually in town, we had snow on the ground, on the streets, on the lawns. It was on the news. Everybody's freaking out for sure. (laughs) feel like it's COVID. We shut everything down. It snows in Arizona. If aliens show up tomorrow, I'm not going to be surprised. Anymore. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So Darren, you are, you've been with triage now, which is a nurse triage service and maybe a little more since its inception. How many years ago was that? Uh, right about eight years, eight years ago. Yep. So I know we're going to talk about triage now and all of the cool things that you guys are doing. Um, but the great thing about the podcast is when we bring you on, we kind of dig in to your social media presence <laughs> and for the listeners out there, uh, you've got a great blog. You've got your own blog page, which you're sharing awesome information, uh, motivational, inspirational, some things about you and it's darrenchatter.com. Did I get that right? Uh, correct. That's the website. And most of the the social media handles are all Darren chatter. What all one word. Um, as you know, as I mentioned to you, it's, it's, it's definitely self therapeutic for sure. I love writing and getting some ideas out of my head and onto paper, so to speak. Um, and then if I think that they're worthy of it, I add that to the blog that's on my, the Darren chatter website. And then that gets posted on my Darren chatter LinkedIn page, which then rolls over to my day job, Darren Shank, Triage Now VP of Sales LinkedIn page. And I share some of the ones that I think are either inspirational, like you said, motivational, or a, a current topic that is, uh, you know, prompting more discussion, things like that. So it's had some cool side benefits. I've, I've connected with a few people or reconnected with somebody that I, I'm, uh, you know, technically connected with through LinkedIn, but haven't spoken to directly in a while. Um, you know, a few clients have reached out and said, Hey, I shared this with my sales team this morning, things like that. So I've had some surprising side benefit to it, uh, other than it being just kind of a self-serving, you know, mental clarity kind of exercise. I, I personally, I, I probably spent 15 minutes on there yesterday, just going through <laughs> it. <laughs> and, uh, um, I know it, it, it uh, Cause it says on the top, please be patient. Some pages are slow to load. Um, and I was patient and the information on there was good. I, I wrote down a quote that I really liked that I think holds true, um, to especially me, but it says, this is a quote that you posted on darrenchatter.com. Your outside competition is largely irrelevant. You are your competition. Yeah. And I, I love that message. Cause I feel that in order for me to get better, I, in order for me to grow and get better, I have to get better and I have to get out of my head and yep. it's not somebody else's fault. It's not somebody else's problem. It's me. Yep. It yeah. all starts inside, right? As a young company, when I first started in the, in this business, we were always looking at what everybody else did and how could we do that the same or how could we do it better? And then once we kind of hit our stride, we really realized how can we be better? How can we do what we do a little bit better each day, each month, whatever it is? What other enhancements can we bring to our process? And once we switched to that mindset, things really started to take off. We weren't trying to be somebody else. We were trying to be ourselves. And I think that applies on an individual level, also to the corporate level, uh, clearly, because that was that was certainly our path. 
hundred percent. I think it's a small minded position to care about what your competition's doing or to set your expectations based upon your composite, based upon those that you compete with. If you worry about yourself, yeah, you're true to yourself and your path and you're better. I mean, internally and your processes are better. You don't have competition, right? You're all, it's all upstairs. Yeah. And for, for triage now in particular, we were competing against $4 billion a year companies in some case. Uh, they're a lot bigger than we are, right? But in some cases, that's to their disadvantage. What a, a medium to larger size company wants as a refreshing change is to be the marquee client of a smaller company because they get more attention. They feel more hands-on instead of being just a number on a file amongst thousands of other companies that, that a, a competitor of ours may work with. So we spun that to our advantage. And we, we also kind of took the stance that we will always operate like a small company, regardless of how big we grow. So we want to help everybody. We want to customize. And that mindset has already separated us from our competition, from what I can tell. Well, I think from what I've seen, I would agree with you. I know as an insurance agent myself, we've sold ourselves as a boutique agency mm-hmm. and there's just some clients that they prefer a little more handholding yep. or they prefer a little more personalized feel that you don't get when you're, you know, an account number, you call right. an number and they're like, what's your account number? We can't find you. We don't know who you are. What's your account number? Like, I don't know what my account number is for crying out loud. How about you identify me by my name? I have a name. I'm a person. Right. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, sad but true. It would be great if if uh, if the world operated that way on a much more you know personal one to one level. But as we all know, that's not always the case. That's true. So I know we're going to talk about triage now, but yeah. one of the neat things that you and I talked about here a little bit ago, prior to triage now, you had a sports career. I did. I did. It was uh, not the most lucrative sport I could have gone into. <laughs> but it was the most personally rewarding and the best personal growth vehicle I probably could have chosen. I didn't know that when I was a 15 year old kid, but the, my professional racquetball career, and yes, there is such a thing as pro racquetball. I get that as a follow-up question all the time. Um, I didn't know that was a thing and I'm, I'm not yeah. trying to knock racquetball at all. I mean, I did not know that was a thing till yesterday. And I was just talking to somebody today in Minnesota and in his office, they have the state champ for racquetball in Minnesota working in their office. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I the funny part is that guy and I are probably two degrees of separation away. <laughs> um, it is a, it's definitely a small sport. We're the ugly cousin to tennis, right? We, we would love to play in front of tens of thousands of people for millions of dollars. My standing joke is that in racquetball, we played for hundreds of dollars in front of tens of people. Right. That, that was the reality of the sport in its heyday in the late seventies and early eighties. It was as big as it ever was, um, except for one event that came to fruition about 20 years ago. And that dates back to my career. Um, well, ugh, 30 years ago, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. 20 with 20 with the end. That's correct. Um, so we, uh, one of the, more prominent people in the sport of racquetball began putting together the U S open championships of racquetball. So that was by far the largest event a year. We were on the tennis channel for a little while, ESPN, some of the, not the main ESPN, but some of the minor like ESPN three kind of a programming. And so that was great exposure for the sport and brought a lot of uh, awareness to the fact that there is a professional racquetball tour um, but flashback to the eighties when it was at its largest companies like, you know, beer companies and Nike and people like that were involved in the sport. And that's when it was at its absolute peak. The hard part was televising it very effectively. And that really became the downfall of the sport in general. If you can't put it on TV effectively, then the non-industry sponsors aren't terribly interested. And that's really how you make the, ne- the leap to the next level. There's kids riding skateboards at 12 years old that are making $100,000. There's very few racquetball players out there making that kind of money. Where would, where would they hold the, was there like a national championship? So the U.S. Open in its, the first several years was actually held at the Racquet Club of Memphis, which also hosted the St. Jude Tennis, the pro uh, 
um, men's tennis event as well. So they would uh, build a grandstand stadium with a portable court that was uh, lucite on two sides. And therefore the crowd could sit behind the court and on the side. And there was also windows cut in the front wall uh, with the same lucite where a, a camera could be used to film from the front at times. And then in post-production with the three or four different camera angles, you can make all of that look very presentable. Watching it live was almost always done by racquetball fans. So that was fine, but you had to make it look very cohesive on television. And that takes a lot of production work, post-production work, and that's expensive. So for a, a, a niche sport like racquetball, that was also a determining factor. If we could have had somebody like, let's say Nike or Gatorade or somebody like that, say, we're going to be the official sponsor of this event or of, the, of this pro tour. And part of that is the budget to be on ESPN because they would get more exposure out of that. That would have certainly taken us to the next level. But unfortunately, that never materialized. I've learned more today about racquetball. I... <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, it's been, again, for me, starting at age 15, I probably could not have picked too many other sports that I could have started that late and still was able to turn pro and do a lot of the things that I did. If you're not a marquee standout world-recognized junior by age 15 in tennis, you, you've missed your window. Right. Racquetball is a small enough sport that I was able to start late. And even though a lot of the people that I competed against when I was on the tour uh, started 10 years before I did, I just did enough work in a crunched window of time to get to that level and be somewhat competitive with the top 20 players in the world. There was definitely a noticeable gap between me and the, and the guy at number 10. And there was twice that gap from me to number five. I competed against some of the best players in the history of the game and managed to sneak one out of a one game out of a best three out of five match off of them at times. Um, that was as close as I got. Wow. I'm actually, I'm going to have to go back in and dig in and just kind of look at that a little more now, now that I've gotten the education. Well, the, the, the best thing for me was I did a lot of things the hard way. So when I segued into coaching, I've been the coach of the Arizona state racquetball team for the last 14 years. Um, I would never let my kids follow in my footsteps, right? I did a lot of things the hard way and I learned a lot of tough lessons because of it. And so as a coach, that gives me a great base to draw from, even if it's what not to do, right? That, that can be very, very helpful in somebody's personal and, and athletic development. I think personally, the only way to learn is the hard way. I don't, okay. I don't know any other way, but if there's <laughs> a wrong way and a hard way, that's going to be the first attempt. And that's the only way that I'm going to gain any education or insight Yeah, it's okay to fail uh, as long as we can get back up and recover. But yeah, it's always going to be the hard way. Yeah. And as much as I'd like to think I'm smart enough to learn from others and, and, and avoid some of the aches and pains, I, you're right. I, I, I have learned an awful lot of lessons the hard way and had somebody go, well, told you so, but hey, welcome to the club, right? So, you know, it is what it is. So if you're a business owner out there listening to us, don't do it the hard way. <laughs> we've been well, there, seen that, we've done that, we know, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it. anytime you pour your heart and soul into something, your judgment gets clouded, right? It's just, it's so, it's impossible to keep, like you said, as a business owner, or as an athlete, whatever your pursuit or endeavor is, it is so hard to be objective when your heart and soul is tied into what you're doing. And that just leads to bad decisions, right? In some cases, right? You think that you can, you know, I mean, I've, I've flown to or driven to a tournament where I knew I didn't have gas money to drive back, right? <laughs> like I'll figure it out when I get there, right? That's crazy. Sometimes it's necessary. And in that one particular example that jumps to mind, I drove to a tournament in Vegas, knowing that I wouldn't have enough money to drive home if I didn't win the tournament. And I'm not at the pro level. I played in the amateur division, yeah. but uh, I, I literally bounced my entry fee check. And so I had to win the division to cover my entry fee and put gas in the car to get back home. I finished second, which was enough money to get me out of trouble 
and I borrowed a little bit of money to put, you know, gas in the car and stop by Del Taco on the way out of town. That was my weekend in Vegas. Right. Um, but I learned to not do that again because the pressure of that affected me in that final match. And that was part of the reason that I lost had I planned more effectively and could have just gone on the court and played without the worry of, I need the money. I think the results would have been different. I feel like that's a, that's a bigger message right there. Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, the, the entrepreneurial ventures that I've gone into, that was always the downfall was, okay, we need to, we need to have this much money in the bank before we start. Okay. Well, we've got almost that much. We've got an opportunity we might want to explore here. So let's get things rolling. Now we're going in underfunded, underarmed, and sure enough, you know, at some point we fall short because of the lack of planning and the emotional side taking over, not wanting to miss out on something, but we weren't really ready to truly execute. Well, that's not the case with triage now because you guys are doing some pretty cool things. Well, thanks. It's, you know, I mean, we've, we've had our growing pains, you know, uh, since day one, of course, I mean, the first couple of years going into a market where we were competing with, you know, literally billion dollar companies, uh, that was, that was tough. And as I like to, you know, reminisce, it keeps me humble to remember that the first year that we went to the annual uh, workers compensation and disability expo in Las Vegas, we got a, the smallest table slash booth that we could have. And we were right next to the men's restroom. I was practically handing out towels to people as they were walking out of the restroom. That's how close we were. Right. And, but we, we were there, we learned, we had a couple of competitors walk by and go, Oh, cute. You guys are going to do triage. Huh? Good luck. Hopefully you'll be here next year. Right. And then we were, we kept going. We figured things out. We came back next year, a little bit bigger booth, better spot on the floor. Oh, Hey, look, you guys are, you know, good for you. You made it to year two. Right. And then when we're, you know, three or four years deep and we're starting to take clients away from those competitors, now their attitude has changed a little bit. So that was, that was when the fun started. The first couple of years were certainly a struggle as with any startup company, you know, that's probably the case, but we hit a tipping point where things got to be a lot more fun for sure. So let's, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, about what triage is a couple episodes ago, we actually had, uh, Mike McDonough on, oh. uh, Mike McDonough is a work comp renegade in California. Uh, <laughs> he's the king of triage as far as I'm concerned, because the guy has been doing triage and been doing it well and has been implementing it successfully with his clients in California and the surrounding mm-hmm. States for a number of years. Um, and that was, that was kind of the agent side of it. Yeah. It, it blows my mind, but there are still insurance companies out there today. I had a phone call. You're not even going to believe this, Aaron. I had a phone call from yes, a marketing rep from an insurance company today. He says, okay. hey, we're a young company. We're looking to appoint agents. Uh, we want to partner with you. And I said to him, I said, well, how is your claims process handled? And he says to me, well, you log into their website and report it. And I said, are you using nurse triage? And he goes, I don't know what that is. <laughs> this is a representative working for a workers' compensation insurance company that does not know what nurse triage is. Yep. And I mean, luckily we weren't on a Zoom thing, but my, my, my head wanted to come off my body because I don't understand how it's 2021 and nurse triage is not utilized at every single claim, at every single, you know, every claim, no matter the size of the account or the size of the claim, let's transfer that liability to a professional nurse. And so I don't want to, I don't want to steal your thunder here and you're going to do a better <laughs> job at it than I am. But for those businesses that may not know what triage now is or what nurse triage is, can you just help educate us? Sure. So I'm not surprised to hear your experience because I still have that experience frequently. I, it's baffling to me as well why what we do is still somewhat of a well-kept secret. So about 20 years ago, this con- concept came to fruition. We did not invent the process by any means. We had the luxury of standing on the shoulders of the people who did and who came before us and at least meeting those minimum requirements and then looking to add to the process and make things a little different and a little better. So in general, the objective of a nurse triage company is to provide time of injury solutions. So that means assuming it's not a life or limb threatening injury, those should still be 911 phone calls, right? 
Um, anything short of that, you call your nurse triage company, you speak to a registered nurse, the supervisor can initiate the process or the employees can call directly, it depends on the client. They speak to a registered nurse, the nurse follows a medical algorithm to determine the appropriate level of care for that injury. So not the EHS officer, not the manager, not the employee themselves, but a medical professional is making the determination for care within moments of that injury occurring in most cases. So for us, last 2020, and most the companies that I consider our competition all do a good job, right? There isn't anybody that I can kick dirt at and say, oh, they, they're just not doing a very good job of this service, right? There, there's five companies, we're one of them, that provide this service nationwide at a very high level. All of us do a good job. I know there's no governing body to the triage industry. So there, I don't, I, every stat that I'm gonna share is anecdotal. For us in 2020, 42% of the calls that we took ended up as a self-care referral. So that means that that injured employee had an injury minor enough that it did not need clinical intervention based on the medical algorithm and the nurse's professional opinion. So that, of course, directly equates to a 42% reduction in the number of injuries that became claims. So that, for the company, is the major benefit. Not only are you outsourcing the liability of the decision-making, but you're having a medical professional record the phone calls, document everything that happens, and if somebody needs clinical care, help facilitate that. And if somebody can be sufficiently cared for with self-care or even first aid on site, guide them through the process and get that person back in action as quickly as possible. So today, let's, uh, let's say I slip and fall mm -hmm. at work, wet floor sign, whatever it is, slip, fall, hurt my elbow, my elbow hurts. I go to my employer, they don't have nurse triage. I tell them my elbow hurts and I want it looked at. And there's a good chance they're going to say, well, maybe you should self-care. And I, I can probably push back and say, no, it hurts. I think I want it looked at. Emergency room is probably where I'm going to end up if I'm in a rural area. Maybe it's urgent care. If I'm in a larger metropolitan area, it's a thousand dollar bill minimum. Easily. Yeah. Add x-rays, add whatever else to that. Maybe it's not broken. You're right. Thousand dollars. Whereas if I'm an insured that partners with triage now, or maybe my insurance company partners with triage now, we call our 800 number and we've transferred a hundred percent of that liability off onto your team of registered nurses, therefore maybe saving that business a thousand dollar ER bill. Well, to some degree, right? I mean, to a large degree, what you said is correct. This is America. Anybody can sue anybody. Yep. And I, and I, I never want to give a, a prospective client the impression that they're going to be 100% shielded behind triage now. Our medical director's license is on the line first, and then the nurse, and then us as a company. But at some point, if an, if an employee goes to get legal representation, at some point, the employer is going to end up on the list of people that are being sued as well. Now, we're, we're, we're absorbing the brunt of a lot of that. And there are very few opportunities, if any, for an, an injured employee to really get a fraudulent claim through the system or enhance or exaggerate on something. Because if they end up at the clinic, the doctor knows the extent, uh, the extent of the injury or the damage that occurred. So if you fall and like you said, you slip and fall, you land on your elbow, we take that call, we talk about your elbow, we ask questions about anything else being injured and the answer is no several times and then we make a clinical referral. If you go to the clinic and say, my left ankle hurts and my elbow hurts. Well, the left ankle was not related to the injury. We know that by discuss the discussion with the nurse, the mechanism of injury, you know, whether there are any witnesses to the, to the incident that occurred, things like that. So we're putting handcuffs to some degree on that person's ability to get representation and sue their employer or sue us as the triage service. I hate to say it, but if somebody does not disclose to us something important, like they're diabetic and they have a laceration or an abrasion, and we ask that question several times and they don't disclose something if they get a less than ideal outcome, 
and come back to try to sue us, all we have to do is pull the call recording and say, you were asked this question. We made a medical determination based on what you shared with us. And that's very defensible in a court of law, of course. So we're in the position of, for ourselves, easily defending what we do. And as you had said, for the employer, shifting as much of that responsibility to us and away from them as possible. Well, I think that even your team or a nurse triage team is better equipped to make a decision than the floor supervisor, the floor manager, when it comes to non-urgent, non-emergency claims, right? I mean, life-threatening call 911. Nobody is yeah. saying don't call 911 and don't get an ambulance out there. But I think from, from a position of, if I'm an employer and I want maybe some of the best care that I can get for my employees, and maybe our closest facility is 20 or 30 miles away, this is a great resource. And it's going to do, it's going to do a couple of things. One, it's going to allow a recorded statement. It's going to allow the employee to get instant care. I'm guessing you guys pick up the phone in what, 10 seconds, 15 seconds. I mean, um, two or three ring process. Yeah, exactly. There, there's an auto attendant that has that familiar language of, if this is a life or limb threatening scenario, please hang up and call 911. And then we inform the caller that it's being recorded. And then it rolls over to the call center to be answered live. Got it. And one of the cool things that your company does is everybody gets a dedicated number so that when ABC construction calls in, you already know it's ABC construction. Yes. I, I don't, I don't believe that's unique to us. I think the other triage companies do that as well for, for the most part, but for us, we tie that client's info to that, that call in number. So when that phone number hits the call center, that is the information that pops up on the screen in front of the nurse. So we predetermine who gets what documentation, what clinics are in the vicinity of this particular location, things like that. So as much of the process as possible is automated so that we can focus on the high touch part of what we do, which is our nurses talking to your injured employees. That's where the focus of the, of the call should be. So everything that we can automate in the background to happen during or at the end of the call, we do that so we can focus on the human to human part. Got it. So there's a, oh my gosh, there's so much stuff I want to talk about here. Cause I love, I love nurse triage. Okay. So let's say I'm a construction firm and okay. we've seen a lot of construction firms out there right now, uh, in order to get a job, they need to have a mod, a worker's compensation mod factor of one or below. And as an insurance agency, we have to send that to general contractors because a general contractor certainly does not want to hire a sub that has experience with multiple workers' compensation claims on a job. It's going to invite OSHA. It's going to invite delays, all sorts of problems. So going back to that slip and fall claim, if it ends up being self-care for the person that injured their elbow, there is no cost that gets reported to the insurance company or rolls on some loss experience report if that claim ends up being self-care. 80% yes. <laughs> there are... Some of our partners that we work with um, have, as at the carrier level, have a program where they want everything reported to them, even if it's for first aid only. Okay. And then they don't, they don't necessarily assign a claim number and open a claim. They just sit on it in case that happens in the future. By and large, what the, the methodology that we use is that if a clinical referral is made, that's the trigger to send information not only to the clinic, but also to the carrier to set up a claim to pay for that clinic visit and the other expenses. Got it. So slip and fall claim results in self-care ends up being probably a $0 claim becomes a claim. If there's a referral the next day tomorrow. And at that point, the claim cost has been reduced because instead of an urgent care or emergency room claim, we're doing a doctor's follow-up or doctor's visit and getting some eyes on it. Then usually probably within 24, 36 hours, still a lower cost for the employer. Yep. And that employee got instant moment of care. Yes. And the other thing is, especially, unfortunately, in these, these times with the COVID concerns, we were trying to make the best employee experience possible out of the unfortunate scenario of a workplace injury. So if you go to an ER because you think that's the best level of care, or in some cases, the time of day dictates that that's the only thing that's open, or as you mentioned earlier, you know, rural areas where the nearest uh, medical 
resource at all is the ER or the hospital that's the next town over and is 60 miles away. All of those things are factored in, right? If we can have somebody meet the criteria for self-care, then they don't need to go to the clinic at all. If somebody has a minor injury and it's four o'clock in the morning because they work a third shift at a, at a warehouse or they're just showing up at the job site for a construction, they jump out of the truck, they twist their ankle, but they're on the premises. So that makes it work related. The only thing open is the ER. Well, that's going to be a long wait time because it's not a life or limb, thre- limb threatening injury. The care playbook at that point is all very, very similar. So what the nurse at the ER would say is the basically the same thing that the nurse at the urgent care or occupational medicine facility would say, as well as what our nurses would say. And right now, unfortunately, there's concern about who's sitting next to you in the waiting room at the ER, right? If somebody's walking in because they think they need a COVID test or they lost their sense of taste and smell and they're coughing like crazy and they're not sure what's wrong, you don't want to be sitting next to that guy for three to four hours in the ER waiting for a nurse to come talk to you. So all of those things can be filtered out with a triage process. Let's take it even one step further. I think the cool thing about triage is if I may be construction and I've got crews working in multiple job sites, multiple States, one call to you. And we now know where to go. That, employ- that injured worker gets instant care no matter where they're at. And then you can manage that claim process for our on behalf of the employer, as opposed to that employer or that, you know, like you said, if it's six o'clock in the morning, somebody slips and falls on a job site, HR is not in until eight. Right. They don't know what to do. Where do they go? Do I have to file a claim? Should I go to the ER? Should I not go to the ER? If the employer has this nurse triage from triage now in place, they call that 800 number. You guys can make a determination, set up the right appointment, put them in the network and advise where they go and make sure that process is simple from the instant phone call. Yep. We, we're the tip of the spear in that process. And like you said, with having you know injuries that happen 24-7, a company resource isn't always available. So even more reason to have a triage service in place. But even if it's during the day, the the registered nurses can ask questions that managers and supervisors should not. Are you on blood thinners? Are you diabetic? You know, what medications do you take? Things like that, that are very relevant in dealing with the injury, but are HIPAA protected. So now you're in that gray area of, okay, well, I shouldn't ask this question, but I'm gonna, so that I know what to do. That's bad. Or I'm not going to ask the questions and I'm going to tell somebody who is diabetic but I'm, I, as the manager, I'm not aware. I'm going to tell them, uh, put a bandaid, you know, put, go, go to the first aid kit, put a couple bandages on that. You know, hopefully it, it should be fine. Go ahead and get back to work. Well, a week later that that person now has an infection on that abrasion. And now they're going to go to the hospital to get it debreeded, maybe stitched up. They're going to miss some time, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So by being the time of injury solution that we are, we're taking better care of the employees we're alleviating some of the duties of the company and even the EHS officers, right? I mean, that's kind of their role, but they don't have the medical expertise to the degree that the registered nurses do. So again, you're outsourcing those decisions to us or another triage service. And when a clinical intervention is necessary, we facilitate that. We send all the documentation out to anybody who's involved in the process and that is typically where the triage service ends. If somebody walks through the doors of a clinic, they're now under the care jurisdiction of that clinic. If we make a first aid or self-care recommendation, they're still technically under our care jurisdiction, but because it's very minor, we would expect to not hear back from that person or rarely hear back from somebody that gets a self-care disposition because the instructions that we share are minor and that should be sufficient to have market improvement overnight or in the next day or two. If I have an employer and I don't have triage now, and that's something I want to put in on my own, what, uh, do you have an estimated cost? I mean, without holding it any numbers, like how inexpensive is it for a business to put this in maybe a a one, a one shop location or something? Yeah. So it's a million dollars to set it up and then just kidding. 
Um, if that was the case, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, right? <laughs> so um, we have a small setup fee. There's an annual fee that covers recurring expenses like replacing posters and wallet cards, doing more training, updating the phone app, things like that. Um, and the setup fee includes all of our, the niceties that we bring to the table, such as our client portal, where you can run all of your own reporting if you choose to, the phone app, all of the training that we do, which comes in a variety of forms. We have some pre-recorded videos. I do custom voiceover PowerPoints. I do live web-based trainings, and we can even do a train the trainer scenario. All of those kind of expenses are rolled into that one-time setup fee. From that point forward, it is a pay-as-you-use-it service for most of our clients. If it's a large enough client that has maybe 100 injuries a month, for example, they can benefit by prepaying and have a little bit of a discount instead of just a regular fee on, on their invoice at the end of the month. But for a smaller client, the pay-as-you-use-it is the ideal setup because there's no monthly minimums, there's no pre-purchase and use it or lose it type of a methodology. When the phone rings, however many times they, they call us in January, on February 1, they get an invoice for those phone calls. If there was no calls in January, they don't get an invoice from us in February. It's, it's just as simple as that. So I think what I want to uh, share with business owners out there is that the cost to put this in is, is very reasonable. I would almost say inexpensive really for what you get. And the other thing we should probably touch on is if I'm a business or a small business and my workers' compensation company does not have triage now or nurse triage, I can partner with triage now and put that in on my own. Yes. So in an ideal world, you as the client should have full autonomy to make those decisions. There are, from what I hear, a few insurance carriers out there that discourage the use of this type of service. And the reason for that is, is simply selfish, right? They charge you for every claim they set up. A triage service is going to reduce the number of claims. Therefore, they don't want you using the service. Well, here's the reality. A, you're the client, so you do get to make those decisions. B, they're going to save money working with you versus you leaving them to go to another carrier who does offer that service. So in the end, it is the best thing for everybody, to, for all of us to play nice in the same sandbox and have our service funnel into the rest of the services that the carrier would provide and make that a cohesive approach. I like it. So I would advocate, I'm a hundred percent on board with you. If, if you're a business owner and you're purchasing workers' compensation insurance, step one, at a bare minimum, at least find a carrier that offers some type of triage. Your employees will thank you and you're going to have a better claim experience. And from a paperwork and an administrative compliance issue, once they call the 800 number on all of that documentation is taken verbally, it's a recorded statement there is a much higher level of protection there for you, the business owner, than there is for somebody who sent somebody to the ER and seven days later is filing a first report of injury with yeah. the carrier. Yep. So yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. What do you want to say? So the, yeah, a couple of thoughts jumped to mind there when you were going through that. So when you have a time of injury solution that also does all the documentation, one of the major complaints that the carriers have, which you were alluding to there, is the lag time of reporting. <clears throat> Excuse me. So not only does that impact, in some cases, the care for the employee, because if they show up at the clinic and there's no documentation, the, <laughs> we all think that the clinics will do the care and then worry about who to chase for the bill. That's not the case. That, that person will sit there until the company can get a hold of somebody that says, oh, yeah, yeah, this, you know, we work with... Liberty Mutual or our account, or, or excuse me, our policy is with travelers and here's the number, you can bill the, uh, that policy number for the claim, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so when you automate those processes through a triage program, you're, you're streamlining it for everybody. The employee will get the care they need as soon as they walk in the door. Everybody else who's involved in the process, including the carrier, gets the information they need to set up a claim and we're in the triage business, we're not in the investigative business, right? So there still needs to be an adjuster that reaches out, gets more detail and stuff, but 
when we can get a statement from the supervisor and from the employee themselves and get that into the hands of the right people, that greatly expedites the process overall. And I'm just guessing for those people that say, I don't want to call in. It takes too long. I'm too busy. <laughs> those are probably common excuses, right? Sometimes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm amazed that people call us and they're mad that we're trying to help. Right. It's like you have a, you're talking to a nurse within moments of getting hurt and you're, you just wanted to go and sit at the ER. That's not, a, that's not solving the problem, right? You're going to sit at the ER for a couple of hours before the nurse there talks to you. If you talk to our nurse, she's going to tell you, she or he is going to tell you, you know, how serious this is, what the next course of action should be. If you can do things immediately to help alleviate pain, or if we need to get you to a clinic, we're streamlining the process when you get there. All of that is to the employee's benefit. But on occasion, people call and are a little grumpy with the nurses because they're like, ah, this is a hassle. I don't want to be on the phone for 15 minutes. I just want to go to the ER. Well, that's not the fastest resolution by any means. No. And sitting in the ER and some of those larger metropolitan, <laughs> like, yeah, we're fortunate where we live that uh, it, we're pretty rural and we get in and out. But I've heard, you know, horror stories about you know, the large cities and you can spend seven, eight, 10, 12 hours just waiting. Yep. It is not uncommon. We actually work with a large um, university. Uh, can't say exactly who they are, but they're on the left coast. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. And they have a facility on site. And sometimes their wait times are six to seven hours routinely. And so when we can funnel people to the urgent care, that's better for everybody. It's a way better experience for the employee. It's not clogging up the hospital that's in, the, in their vicinity. It's getting people to the urgent care, which is a faster resolution. It's less expensive care without sacrificing the care. The hospitals just charge more for the same type of care when it's mi a minor injury. So it's a win for everybody for sure. So let's talk about, uh, there's a push in the industry right now. I mean, instead of, instead of calling to do like what we're doing right now, Zoom, mm -hmm. Uh, video app. Where do you where do you see the future heading for for uh, the ability for businesses to be able to report claims and actually, I don't want to say FaceTime, but like FaceTime video conference, whatever the term is, the the registered nurse with the injured worker. So we kind of took us a halfway step towards that a while ago. We brought the first phone app to the industry that allowed you to take a still photo or two of an injury and send it to the nurse in real time. Now, there's limitations to that, right? If you pull a back muscle, there's nothing to look at. But if somebody gets bitten or stung by an insect or an animal, has an abrasion, a laceration, a chemical burn, something like that, um, it can be very helpful because you know we've all had injuries and the nurses all joke about how, you know, the women are so much tougher than the men are, a guy will call you and tell you, oh, it's a 10 out of 10 on a pain scale. Well, if you're speaking in a normal voice and not fading in and out of consciousness, it's not a 10 out of 10, right? You haven't experienced childbirth. You don't know what 10 out of 10 is, right? So um, we, that's a, the, the phone app was helpful in determining more accurate information in some cases and we get both ends of the spectrum. We get somebody that has a splinter and thinks they need to go to ER. And we may get the occasional construction worker that shoots himself with a nail gun in the thigh, but wants to finish the job first before they worry about the injury, right? So sometimes we're talking people off the ledge. Sometimes we're talking sense into them. But the phone app with the pictures helped facilitate that. Awesome. The extension, obviously, would be to, to upgrade to video and bring a video interaction into that process. How far do you think the industry is from that? Well, it's already happening. Um, we don't do that ourselves. We partner with a couple of companies that do telemedicine. Our primary partner has been Concentra. They have a great system. They have their own brick and mortar locations around the country. They have dedicated doctors to doing telemedicine. Somebody, some other companies are still trying to build their doctor network and things like that. So it's a little clunkier. Concentra has really, they're, they're, I think they're much farther down the road than most. So How does that work? since you're the tip of the spear, is it you take mm -hmm. the claim, you take the report, um, and then if further care is needed, you just transfer that claim off then to, to Concentra? 
when it's applicable. That's that's the best way to do it, in, in our opinion, is to filter the injuries through the telephonic triage process. And when it meets the criteria and the injured employee agrees that telemedicine is a, an additional approach they'd like to take, then we facilitate that. <clears throat> that's the best way to do it for sure. Because the one downside currently, well, there's two, but the one major downside to telemedicine is that if you see a doctor via video, it creates a claim. So that negates, at least for us at Triage Now, the 42% self-care rate that we had for our client base last year. That's why we want to filter it. If, the, if we're going to make a clinical referral, let's use a burn, for example. I'm not a medical professional, so you know I'm, I, I try to do my best to stay in my lane here, right? But if somebody has a burn on their arm and we do our telephonic triage process and they're describing it effectively there, we have a good idea of what's going on. The ideal treatment for that would be a prescription ointment, for example. So now instead of sending that person to the clinic, having that person go to the clinic, sit there, repeat the process we just did on the phone, then get a referral to the pharmacy, write a script, go to the pharmacy, sit there, wait for this to get filled. The win with telemedicine would be this. We make sure that this injury is meeting the criteria. The injured employee agrees, yep, I'd like to do telemedicine. We send it to our telemedicine partner. They take over from there. The doctor sees that person via video, writes a prescription, sends it directly to the pharmacy in their vicinity. And the injured employee gets to skip the clinic visit and go right to the pharmacy, get the ointment that they need. And the pain relief and the healing process starts that much faster than the previous example that I gave. That's the win that we're all looking for with telemedicine. It, it just isn't as much of a blanket approach as we would all like because of it negating the, you know, the self-care instances, everything becomes a claim if you, if you only run it through telemedicine. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, there's no one size fits all approach when it comes to workers' right. compensation claims. The one size, the, the one size fits all approach for workers' compensation claims when you don't have nurse triage is the emergency room. We don't know. Go to the emergency yes. room. Right. <laughs> As an alternative, we can pass that claim along to nurse triage. That nurse triage service, if needed, can pass it along video conference to a provider. Yep. It's a seamless experience. It's faster. It's a lower cost. Yep. And, and you gave a great example earlier of somebody working in a rural area, right? Like maybe a highway crew that's doing asphalt. Um, they may be a hundred miles from the nearest location. We, we work with a couple of companies on the Indian reservation that were building a hospital. Well, until they're done, there's no hospital on the reservation, right? Their nearest facility is 180 miles away in Flagstaff, Arizona. So telemedicine is a great solution there because what you want to know is how do we treat this injury? Do we drop what we're doing and get this guy in the truck and drive him 180 miles because that needs to be done? Can we wait till the end of the shift and have him do that on his own time? Do we aerovac this guy out of here because it's worse than we thought? He's got a pacemaker. He got shocked from a downed power line, et cetera, et cetera, right? All of those things can play in. And in some cases, telemedicine is the exact solution that alleviates a lot of those problems. Agreed. Darren, we're running out of time here. What Already? else? All right. <laughs> these hours, I, I try and keep it about an hour, but sometimes these hours go by so fast. What else do you want people to know about nurse triage or triage now? Well, in the grand scheme of things, I think almost every single company benefits from a triage process, right? We even have clients that are call centers and I didn't, I wasn't sure we'd have a ton of impact for them, but people slip in the break room, people fall in the parking lot, right? That's all, those are workplace injuries. So anybody who's doing anything remotely physical should be looking at a triage process, even if it's only for better employee care and they can get a couple of wins by having injuries not end up as claims. If you're a company that has multiple claims a week or multiple injuries a month, if you're not utilizing a triage service, you're absolutely missing out. There's tons of benefit. The big five, all, we all do a great job. For us at Triage Now, we use a slightly different approach on the front end. We have a military triage approach to our algorithms. 
what we're looking at is can we help you where you are and get you back in action or do we need to get you to a clinical environment? Again, this is anecdotal, but what I have learned from the clients that I have taken from competitors and brought them over to triage now, a lot of our competitors utilize a system that's more clinical based, which means of course you're gonna get more clinical referrals out of that. But if you have no triage program, anybody that's in the top five of providers is going to be a huge benefit to you. If you're working with a provider for that service that you think you could do better with, then you know shop around a little bit. There's only a couple of other companies to look at. Of course, I'm biased. I'm gonna tell you that I believe we do a better job. Um, we, I think our biggest attributes are the military triage algorithms and the fact that we are able to customize to a very high degree for each individual client what we do. We wrote our own software, we have our own coders. So that gives us some flexibilities that some of the other big five do not have. Got it. So businesses, if you don't have nurse triage now, or if, you're, if your workers' compensation carrier doesn't provide mm -hmm. nurse triage, number one, go find an insurance company that at least has nurse triage. I mean, like that's step one, right? It's going to make a better experience and help a better claim process. And then what I heard you say that I thought was really interesting was if you're a business that's having multiple workers' compensation claims a month, and maybe you're concerned about having every one of those go directly to the insurance company, maybe layer in a nurse triage service, mm -hmm. such as yourself, which is standalone. That yep. way a claim is filed, but not, I guess, formally filed so that, uh, that dollars are being accrued. Yeah, it's documented if things escalate to where it does become a claim, the process has already started. Again, we've got the call recording if we ever need it. So that's th that. there's plenty of benefits right there for sure. And just to, just to make, let's go back here and revisit mm -hmm. the beauty of nurse triage. The insurance company knows about the claim. Correct. We are not advocating that. I'm not advocating. You're not advocating. We're not, we're not telling business owners don't submit the claim to the insurance company. Right. But the beauty of nurse triage is if the insurance company knows about the claim and it results in self-care, and it gets closed out with $0. That's a win for the business and what they're going to pay in workers' compensation. It's mm -hmm. a win and lower cost for the system. And it's a win because it instantly takes care of the injured worker. Fair enough. Right. Yes. And in some cases, if the insurance carrier is okay with us notifying them only when something gets a clinical referral, they're not even going to be adding up the injuries that were uh, first aid or self-care onto your claims history report for that year. So that means a reduction in the OSHA reportables, obviously everything's recordable, but the OSHA reportables, your EMR score or your EMOD score, if we're taking a bunch of the minor, 42% of the minor injuries off of the books, so to speak, not hiding claims, not squashing information, but handling it appropriately. And because it's first aid or self-care, not having it enter the clinical system, there are tremendous financial benefits to that as well. It's above my pay grade to calculate those things. Um, but when you're talking about lost time, EMR score, all of those kind of things, a, a, a professional in the industry such as yourself could easily shed some light on the additional monetary benefit to the client on those types of things. I can, I can tell you the clinical spent expenditure that would be impacted by a triage service by looking at a claims history report. The other pieces you know, in partnership with a broker or a carrier, you know, we can, we can also shed light on the, the rest of it as well. Absolutely. I'm just an advocate for, I think we just need a better experience. And I think companies like this, like what triage now is doing creates a better experience. I mean, without a doubt. And unfortunately, you know, without a, without a plan in place, employees feel like they're left to their own devices to solve this problem, even though it happened at work, that's never a good place to start from. If you have an employee who's had a couple of injuries and had bad experiences, you know, that's somebody that's a candidate to get lawyered up or just from a, you know, a personnel perspective starts talking very badly about the process in general. Oh, the company doesn't care. They're just trying to save money. You know, they, they're not worried about if my, if my knee gets better or not, you, you don't even want that toxic environment occurring if you can have a better employee experience. And again, I, I firmly believe as you that, that the triage process does really help that it's, it's employee focused and the, tr the byproduct of that happens to be all of the employer benefits that come out of it.
Agreed. Any other messages for businesses or listeners out there today? If not, I have a couple questions for you. <laughs> um, I think we kind of touched on it. You know, like I said, everybody that's in any kind of business that has employees that's looking to, even if you only have five injuries a year, not every one of the triage companies will, will work with you, but there are us and some others that would. Um, it's worth exploring, especially if it's a pay as you use it service. You're really, you're not risking anything. You're not buying something that you're not going to use at that point. So kind of uh, as user-friendly as it could possibly get for sure. So triage now is www.triagenow.com. Uh, .net. .net. My apologies. www.triagenow.net. Your contact information is front and center on the website. Yep. How else can people get a hold of you? Um, LinkedIn's always a good way. I'm, I'm always watching that for sure. Um, day job me, of course, my, my LinkedIn profile for triage now. Um, and, uh, email, of course, like you said, the information's on the website. Um, the phone number that is on the website, if I'm not at my office desk, it rings to my cell phone. So you'll get me either way. You are full service. I tell you what. I do what I can. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up here, um, I ask everybody what they're reading right now. Ah, um, I'm actually in a book club. I started <laughs> nerd, as nerdy as that sounds. Lovely. I started a book club um, with some friends of mine uh, three years ago, and we pick one book a month that we read, and uh, then we all discuss it on conference call because some of my friends are actually out of out of state. Um, we don't sit around drinking tea together, you know, it, at, at my house. It's you know, it's done via conference call or Zoom. But um, uh, what is this? I have to involved though. What's that? Their beverages involved? Um, not for me, but I'm sure some of the, some of the people are for um, for sure. Um, so I'm actually reading a couple of books. So I'm blanking on which one was for the the assigned one for the um, uh, for the book club. Um, actually, you know what? I hate to do this, but I'm going to look it up. <laughs> You're looking it up. The last the last guy I asked this to, he was a private investigator. He says. I don't read books. I read these. And he held up a private investigator magazine of like, oh, wow. And I thought, I told him, I said, I didn't even know that that magazine existed. That was, yeah. Oh, that's why I didn't remember. It's a repeat for me. Um, we're reading outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, I love him. Um, really like that book a lot. Um, if, if you've read it before, you kind of know that's where the 10,000 hours towards mastery theory really kind of crystallized. I know there's been a lot of dispute to that. Um, you know, I, I think there's some validity to it. I mean, having been a, a professional athlete, accruing time on the court, mastering certain skills, I would say that his, his numbers are pretty accurate. You know, does that translate directly over to, to Bill Gates and other people that he uses as examples? Maybe, maybe not. But for me, I actually thought that fit my timeline pretty effectively. I thought that was probably spot on in, in that assessment. So I'm curious to see my, my book club has um, uh, quite a, a wide variety of age ranges. So I'm always curious as the different inputs and the different takeaways everybody has. So having read this once before and it, it still being, you know, kind of fresh in my mind, I'll be real curious to see what everybody else has to say. I'd be curious to hear that too. I read, uh, he's actually got, I think four books out now. And I, I'm just in the middle of uh, what the dog saw. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I like his writing style a lot. Um, you know, I'm, I, there, there's just a conversational tone to it with a good balance of a lot of technical information, but not too technical where it's boring or over my head, or I'm stopping and looking stuff up so that I can understand what he's talking about. I, he's a great writer for sure. Yeah. And so for people who haven't heard of the outliers as, and I'm trying to go from memory cause it's been a while since I've read this, but he talks about how the, the, where your birth is, like if you're a baseball player, chances are you're born between January and what March. Um, uh, hockey was the one that he used that sticks in my head because of the traveling teams and the, the coaching, the level of coaching you'd have access to and things like that. So yeah, if you were born earlier in the year and as a 14 year old, you had 11 months as a 14 year old versus having a birthday in November where you were a 14 year old for one month of the year, that was a tremendous advantage in terms of your physical development um, and a, a bunch of other things that went along with that. Yep. And he, yeah, he correlates that back to Bill Gates and the programming he used to do at the library at night and the 10,000 yeah. hours. 
Fantastic. All right. Next thing is what's uh, what are you spending more money on than you should? <laughs> That's a great question. So um, I'll go back to last year to, to answer that question. Um, food. Um, my wife, my wife and I are kind of foodies. We went to some really nice restaurants. Um, it's in Sedona, Arizona. We went to a, a new restaurant that we had never been to before. It was quite a pricey experience. Um, it's not something we do very often, but we decided to treat ourselves. Um, as of January of this year, we've put ourselves on a budget. We have some finance, personal financial goals that we're close to achieving. So we're, we've, we're kind of on self-imposed lockdown financially for some of the niceties that we experienced last year. Um, but as for something that you possess for 30 minutes or less, food is a terrible investment, right? But the experience of going to Sedona, spending the weekend, going to a really nice restaurant, you know, my wife looks up the menu ahead of time so that she, you know, she studies through it, knows exactly what she wants, right? I show up, I look at the menu, I'm like, oh, steak, there we go. You know, but it's an experience for us and that has a lot of value, but, you know, sometimes that value is not, uh, uh, the monetary value of that versus the experiential va value are quite disparate. So that was something we've decided we, sh we spent too much money on last year and we're clamping down on this year. I totally understand. I'm a foodie as well. And I think the reason I'm successfully still married and I say still married, cause I might be hard to get along with at some points and <laughs> uh, is the date days or the date nights yeah. where we do the nice dinner, we go out to eat, we enjoy each other and it's just her and myself. So totally get it. I think I wrote a blog post about that not too long ago <laughs> about, you know, just being the, uh, the best partner that you can be. And date night is certainly part of that, right? I mean, you don't ever want to lose the romance just because you got married and continuing to date your wife or your spouse is certainly a big part of that. Absolutely. And last thing is what, what piece of it, you get the floor here on the way out. What, uh, what piece of advice do you want to leave for the listeners today? Uh, good question. Um, you know, for one of the things that I talk about a lot in relation to my racquetball career is to not make a job out of your passion. I happen to love what I do at Triage Now. I'm really excited still eight years into it to, you know, land new clients and share the opportunity of what benefits we bring with a company, large or small. I love the company culture that we have. I absolutely love what I do, but I never got, you know, the work comp business isn't the sexiest business out there. Right. And I didn't have any experience in this business previously. The hard lesson that I learned as a professional racquetball player was I made a job out of something I was very passionate about. And that ended up becoming a job and led to burnout. And that's why I retired from the sport. So I think the ideal world is that you have a job that you at least like. I'm fortunate that I love what I do, but at least a job that you like, that on Sunday night, you're not dreading going to work tomorrow and then have a passion on the side that you throw all your spare time and effort and maybe money into, whether that's building homes for Habitat or for Humanity, digging wells in the Congo for the pygmies, being a big brother, big sister, whatever it is that you're passionate about that fills your soul, don't expect your day job to, to check that box too. I think if you keep those things separate, it gives you a different perspective when you're at the office and when you're away from the office. And that's the best of both worlds. That is great advice. That is great advice. I, I, I wish I would have known that sooner. I, who knows? Maybe I'd still be complaining. I would still be paying, uh, excuse me, playing competitive racquetball, uh, not at the pro level, of course, but um, I, I did. I totally burned out on it because you know, winning matches to, to pay rent or to put gas in the car is a lot of pressure. And eventually that just becomes too much. If I would have been a fireman at that age of my life who played pro racquetball, might've been a completely different story. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm in agreement with you. Do something that you love. And I think life's getting too short to put up with things we don't love. Definitely. And uh, there needs to be some type of balance and you need to find that balance internally. I don't know that there's such a thing as a work-life balance, but I think there's just balance in general and you'll know where it's at in your life. Yeah. I, 
I don't think it was Warren Buffett, but somebody his age range, you know, very knowledgeable, um, was doing an interview and, and, and he said he doesn't believe in work-life balance. It's whatever you choose it to be. If you want to be an entrepreneur and, and work 18 hours a day because you love it and that's what your passion is, awesome, go do that. If you want to work part-time and travel the world, great, do that. Do what makes you happy. But having a blanket definition of work-life balance just doesn't work. Everybody's too different. So you have to find what your definition is of that and, and go from there. Agreed. And with that, we'll end this, this great informative podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Karen, thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks.